Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Everyone, welcome to Fitz on Fantasy. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. Find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. So glad you could join me. The Senior Bowl took place last week in Mobile, Alabama. The Combine is coming up in the first week of March. And then we have the NFL Draft at the end of April. Just a little more than two and a half months away. It's prospect season, folks. This episode is mostly going to be about the incoming rookies, which is why I'm very excited to welcome in this week's guest. Not only is he a keen observer of college football and an outstanding talent evaluator, he's one of the most passionate fantasy analysts around. Every time I hear him do a radio hit on the Sirius XM Fantasy Channel or a podcast appearance, he gets me so fired up that I am ready to run through a brick wall. I mean, this guy delivers the goods, and he does it with a shot of adrenaline. It's John Lobb, the gridiron scholar himself. He's the co-host of the Draft Seminar Show along with Matt Hicks, and he is a regular contributor to the Football Diehards. You can find John on Twitter at gridironskull 91 Welcome to the show, John. Oh, thank you, Pat. It's such a pleasure to come on. I've been listening to your show now. It made my, um, you know, weekly rounds about six months ago. So you reached out to me on Twitter and you invited me on. And I'm so excited to come on with you, my friend. Oh, excellent. And and what an exciting time of year to kind of like look back. Uh, things haven't really started to gel as far as people's rankings, uh, dynasty rankings. I know there's still debate and, uh, you know, obviously things really kind of gets squared away after the draft. But here in the, the pre-draft phase, things are a little bit up in the air. And and especially this year, John, I think at the quarterback position, uh, last year's senior or last week's senior ball was somewhat unusual in that almost all of the top QB prospects were there in Mobile, save for Matt's Corral of Old Miss, who had injured his ankle in the Rebels bowl game. But all the other top guys were there, Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, Sam Howell, Desmond Ritter, Carson Strong. But from a dynasty perspective, this QB class just absolutely terrifies me, John. I mean, in a super flex rookie draft, normally I would have to find a good excuse to take anything but a QB in the first round. With this class, I'm frightened to take any quarterback in the first round. And I don't know if I would bet even money on any of these guys being week one starters three years from now in 2024. Like, do you have any of the same trepidation about this group or are you a little more bullish on uh, this QB class than I am? Very interesting question because there are players that I like at the quarterback position. One of the things that is fascinating this year, there is no elite at the top like Trevor Lawrence last year, which is ironic because unfortunately Trevor Lawrence 
you know, being stuck in Jacksonville with, you know, Urban Meyer as his quarterback coach or offense coordinator head coach. It didn't work out so well. So, and I think he was pretty much a consensus number one pick in Superflex drafts last year. And I wonder how many people would like to have that back right now. I will admit I only have two players with the first round grade at the quarterback position. I do believe that four players will go off the board in the first round simply based on supply versus demand. I'll say this, Pat. I'm always amazed in the beginning of the draft cycle, people always have quarterbacks falling really far down the board. Oh, there's only two or three quarterbacks. First one off the board is going to be number 14, except for Trevor Lawrence. That was like a universal, he's the number one. And then as the as the months go forward, Sure enough, quarterbacks rapidly get pushed up the board. Teams are desperate. Right now, I look at six teams, and we could possibly argue there could be more, but there are six teams that right now I would not feel comfortable as either a general manager or a coach entering the season with the depth chart that I have right now at the quarterback position. What does that say to me? You have to either draft a new young player and take a risk, or you have to trade or possibly get one in the free agent market. What I believe will happen is at least four of these teams will say, let's put our chips on the table right now for the quarterback. It is advantageous for the salary cap. We all know the greatest advantage in the NFL right now is a rookie franchise quarterback on that first contract. There is no reason whatsoever not to plug a rookie into your lineup and see what happens. Look at last year what the Texans did with Davis Mills, right? Um, I think he was a third-round pick, maybe a fourth-round pick, if my memory serves me. Third, yeah. Yeah, and Davis Mills was a serviceable starter. If you're the Pittsburgh Steelers, right now, would you rather have Davis Mills or would you rather have Mason Rudolph at the quarterback position? If you surveyed, if you surveyed, you know, let's say you got 10 general managers – to give you the honest truth, I bet you seven of them would take Davis Mills right now, my friend. What does that tell me? Four of these young men are going to be drafted in the first round. I think two of them are going to be in the top 10. Now, based on that, to get to your question, I do like two of them in Superflex. And what I'm going to say this I'm going to take a somewhat contrarian position this year in Superflex. We do know, in general, quarterbacks are pushed way up the board in Superflex drafts. I have a feeling my top guy is going to fall. 
and I'm going to target him. And this is why I say this. In my dynasty leagues, I think it was four years ago now, I had to take Lamar Jackson when he fell to the third round. I also took him in the second round often. I had tons of Lamar Jackson, and it was not the player I necessarily was targeting, but what happened is he fell. Two years ago, I have so much Jalen Hurts, I can't even describe it right now, Pat. He was available always in the second round, and sometimes he fell to me in the third round where I had no option, in my opinion, but to take the value of the quarterback. To me, I'm going to take a contrarian pick, a contrarian kind of philosophy amongst the, what I think there's now four quarterbacks and people have them rated differently. I'm going to take the last of the four quarterbacks, Pat. That's where the value is. I don't think there's a huge difference in the top four. I think all of them come with risk and have a nice ceiling. So let me take the one that falls down the board, the last man standing. That will be my super flex strategy. I'm not going to reach for a quarterback if I have a top three pick. Um, does that make is that does that kind of make sense? My theory here, how I'm going to go about it. It does. How do you expect things to go? Do you expect Malik Willis to be number one after his strong senior ball showing and uh, just with the raw tools? I mean, if you squint hard enough, I think people can see Josh Allen and Malik Willis as a a running quarterback with a, a strong arm. I mean, obviously, there's some pretty alarming film on him from his college career. But at the same time, I mean, we we knew that Josh Allen had some mechanical issues where he needed cleanup. And, uh, you know, it's it's worked out really well for Buffalo, obviously. I do believe Malik Wills will be the player off the board first in Superflex. I have him rated number three. I do not have him at the top of my quarterback board. But I do expect him to go off first. And I believe that's a result of a market correction. Dynasty players are upset that they lost out on Zach or on Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, and Jalen Hurts. And they're all now scrambling to find the player who is going to be the next Jalen Hurts. I do not think Malik Willis is as good as Jalen Hurts as a prospect. I had a very high grade on Jalen Hurts. I just said I took him everywhere. I was extremely bullish on the Oklahoma quarterback. Malik Willis is not as well polished. I don't think he's as good of a thrower. And people aren't giving Jalen Hurts. He's an elite NFL runner. Jalen Hurts is as good of a runner at the quarterback position as anyone in the league. Maybe Willis has a little bit more speed, but people underestimate how big Jalen Hurts is. Jalen Hurts is a big man. I have a second round grade on Malik Willis. There is a huge ceiling. He This ceiling could be Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen-ish. However, <clears throat> I think people are overlooking a floor 
You're talking about a young man from Liberty, an independent program. Basically, Liberty is playing a group of five schedule. And when I plug him into my model, Malik Willis, I look for six, six benchmark stats. Malik Willis only exceeds two of those six, my friend. There are some warning signs here that I think people are staring high at the ceiling and not looking at the, you know, the danger here. 23 games played. That's a big warning sign in my book. I think he needs a year on the bench, kind of like Trey Lance. I said the same thing about Trey Lance last year. Now, Lance showed us in two games, and I used him in DFS, and I had it in a two-quarterback league. I had to play Trey Lance once. But he really got the job done with his legs, and San Francisco manufactures incredible yak yards because the receivers are so explosive down the field. So the numbers look pretty good with Trey Lance, but if you saw the games or put it into context, he wasn't overly impressive, but he did produce fantasy points. I think Malik Willis is in that boat right now. I'm going to propose one thing with you, Pat. If Malik Willis goes to Carolina, are you excited to have him as your super flex quarterback? That's a tough, right? It is. Um, <laughs> yeah, not if I'm taking him in the top four picks. Yeah, that's and, and I think that's something no one's talking about. There's a chance that Carolina could end up with Malik Willis. Wow. That and in the four picks, I'm not even touching him right there, my friend. So that's <laughs> that to me is a made he's a very interesting player and I like him. Do I have him? As a second-round grade, he's my third-ranked quarterback in this class. I do like him, and I think with the right coaching, with the right personnel, Malik Willis could be a very good fantasy player, if not great. But there is a chance that he could fail. So who are number one and number two for you? Excellent. Number one, I'm going to be on this island and I'm willing to be alone. I'm very comfortable on being on my own island. It's Sam Howell, North Carolina. I like that call. I mean, he he's young, and he's a three-year starter, and he was an <laughs> impactful player right away. Pat, he's an early breakout, right? He walks onto the campus, and he starts immediately, and he turns around the Tar Heels offense. Like, if you had been watching North Carolina – and how before Mac Brown got there and before Sam Howell got there, the Tar Heels were not very impressive, my friend. Sam Howell walked on as a true freshman and immediately turned around that offense. And I, I like this part. A lot of people criticize last season for Sam Howell. I'll admit the numbers don't look as good. And the film isn't as great. If you watched him in 2020 and then watched him in 2021, there's no question 
he played better 2020. But my friend, let's put it into context. His entire offense fell apart around him. Literally, Javante Williams gone. Michael Carter gone. Daz Newsome gone. De'Ami Brown gone. And the majority of the offensive line gone. I like the fact that the young man had to overcome adversity. I think it was great to see the young man get punched in the face. And you know what I saw? A young player, competitor, who kept getting off the ground. And Sam Howell changed his game. Pat, he's much more athletic than people give him credit for. I don't, people don't talk about Sam Howell athletically. He has over 1,009 career rushing yards for North Carolina. And you mentioned it. He started immediately. He has 37 games at the ACC level of football. Unbelievable production. And when I put him in my model, Pat, he passes five of the six categories that I'm looking for. In my nine years, no player who exceeded five of the six benchmarks has not become a fantasy impactful player. Now, there are players like Josh Allen who look terrible in my model and exceeded all expectations. Does that make sense? No one who has done five out of six categories has failed. Now, the test is going to be Trevor Lawrence, right? <laughs> he he had five of six categories last year, and let's see what happens. But I still believe in Trevor Lawrence. Exceptional talent. My number two, and I put him at number two because I think he has a higher floor than Willis, but he doesn't have the ceiling of Willis. And that's Kenny Pickett of Pittsburgh. And I'm not in love with the player as a late star. I mean, anyone who watched college football, he didn't break out until his fifth year. And I think he might be 24 when the season kicks off in the NFL. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so we're looking at a very late breakout player. But I'm open-minded, and I understand that the offense changed. He grew, and there's no question that the film of Kenny Pickett is really impressive. He does one thing that I like, and I'm very, very, when my when I look at the film, he keeps his eyeballs downfield while he is scrambling. He does not scramble to run. He scrambles to throw the ball. And then he's very good at throwing the ball on the run. That is an impressive skill that he has. But when I plug him in my model, my friend, he only hits two of six benchmarks because he has really not, he did not play well his first three years as a starter. I don't think he threw more than 14 touchdowns in any season before this final season. And his passing efficiency was poor. And here's a number that scares me that I don't hear people talking about. And I don't believe there's a magic bullet. There's no one number that will guarantee a quarterback succeeds or fails, but there's warning signs. His yards per attempt 
over his college career, Pat, was 7.3 yards an attempt. That's really bad. He's below Desmond Ritter. He's below Carson Strong. To give you an idea, and people don't give Howell enough credit, Howell averaged 9.2 yards a throw in 37 games. That's an amazing number. He threw the ball down the field. He's a he's much better than people give him credit for. So Kenny Pickett is 1.9 yards per attempt below Sam Howell. So that's a that's a flag to me. But I do understand if you're an NFL team, let's say Pittsburgh, and I, I don't I think it's I don't think they're actually interested. I think they're throwing warning signs out there to get people off their scent. I don't believe that that's who they want right now. Why would you tell anyone that's who you want? That doesn't make any sense. But if you're Denver, you're Pittsburgh. I do believe you can put Kenny Pickett on the field and he can lead your offense better than they've had the last two years. So those are my top two. And then Willis is third, my friend. Nice. And uh, yeah, where do uh, where do Ritter and, and Strong come in for you? Also, oh, okay. second so I have Matt value. Corral four. Then oh, Corral. Yep, and then it's well, he didn't. He wasn't at the Senior Bowl, so we kind of sometimes forget, right? Sure. I have Desmond Ritter five, and Carson Strong six. I like Desmond Ritter, but he's wildly inaccurate, my friend. I mean, I love the American Athletic Conference because you know I live in Connecticut. I, I'm a big UConn fan. I, and we used to be in the conference, we left now. But I just grew to love it because of college fantasy football. And there's just so much scoring in the AAC. And I probably watched Desmond Ritter 15 times live over the last two years. And boy, can he just frustrate you, my friend. Like, he made some throws where you're so impressed. You're like, that is an NFL throw. What a great play. And Pat, literally on the next play, he could miss a wide open receiver by three yards. Like, that just can drive you crazy as a viewer and lover of the quarterback position. His numbers in my bench model, he passed, he exceeds three of the six benchmarks. He is incredibly athletic. I gave him for escapability grade. That's the ability to miss the pass rushers and by time while looking down the field to throw, I gave him an A-. minus. His rushing equity and his rushing yards are excellent. But his, his ability to be accurate and on time with the throws are, are worrisome. And I'll tell you what else. I don't know if he's an anticipatory thrower. That I don't see it on film because that's not the Cincinnati offense. I have a second round grade because I think his ceiling could be, and he's a different player, but fantasy-wise, and I mean points scored, he could be like Derek Carr, Andy Dalton in their best years. Very good, never elite. He might with the rushing equity. He could get 400 yards rushing with five or six touchdowns at the NFL level, which would make him maybe push into that top 12. But you're looking at someone who everything would have to go right for. 
So I have a second round grade. I do think there's value in him in the second round. Carson Strong. I get it. Everyone whacks poetically about arm strength. I'm too old, Pat. I'm in my 50s. I've been watching quarterbacks for 40 years. Arm strength is probably the last thing I'm concerned about at the NFL level. As long as you have adequate arm strength, I'm okay with it. I understand when you see someone like Carson Strong just throw the football the way he does, people get mesmerized by arm strength. But the quarterback position is more than arm strength. I have a second round grade. I'd be weary of him from a fantasy standpoint because you don't have any rushing upside. In his best case scenario, maybe he develops into a Kirk Cousins where he throws for 4,500 yards and 32 touchdowns. Do I think it's possible? Yes. Is it likely? I don't think so. So that's why I have Carson Strong at number six. I love the arm talent, but I have a lot of questions. He's inaccurate at times. He can't move in the pocket very well. I know people kind of show these highlights of him, but if you watch Nevada and you watch him on a game-to-game basis, he looks like Drew Bledsoe from 1998, my friend. Yeah, we uh, Kyle Baller could throw it through the uprights from his yep. knees at the 50-yard line, and Kyle <laughs> could actually run around a little bit, uh, unlike Carson Strong. So, yeah, <laughs> I hear you on that, John. <laughs> that's that's a great blast from the past, Kyler Bowler. <laughs> oh, my God. And he – think about – wow, he actually was drafted by the Ravens with one of the greatest defenses in the history of the game and never developed into anything. Oh, I know. I know. Uh, let, let's talk about some of the big names of running back, John. It, it seems like we have a pretty clear top three with uh, three running backs we figure to go in the first round of almost every rookie draft, even in super flex leagues. Isaiah Spiller, Brees Hall, and Kenneth Walker. Which of these three do you like best? I'm on team Brees Hall. And, I, you know, I think that seems to be consensus right now, but there are definitely Spiller fans. And ironically, I like Spiller a lot. I think it's very close. I wish I could grade them, Pat, as 1A and 1B. They are exceedingly close. When you look at some of their career numbers together, they each average 5.5 yards a carry. They're both listed at 6'1 right now. And Brees Hall is 220 and Isaiah Spiller is 215. They're almost, like in so many ways, identical prospects. But I have Brees Hall based on production, the evidence that he can be the alpha back. Brees Hall has shown us at the college level that he can take 25 to 30 touches a game and he can be highly productive. Last year, Every defense in the Big 12 had to stop him. He had a 34% of the team's scrimmage yards. That's unbelievable, my friend. 82 career receptions. He is no Najee Harris receiving the ball. 
He's not that dynamic, and he's not that impressive of a route runner. However, in the flat, dump-off screen passes, Brees Hall is an NFL caliber back. Just Najee Harris is special. I really believe that. Like, he's an unbelievable pass catcher. 1,774 scrimmage yards this year, 24 straight games with a touchdown. I love his running style. He's very good between the tackles. I believe on my film grade, he's extraordinarily, he has great vision in traffic. And that's a skill like Nick Chubb. If you've seen enough Nick Chubb, I think Nick Chubb has the best between the tackles vision in the entire NFL. How Nick Chubb finds space in between traffic at the NFL level is unbelievable, off the charts. Brees Hall is very good. He's not Nick Chubb good, but he's super good at that. He does have a second gear. Now, it's going to be interesting with his athletic scores at the Combine or Pro Day, depending on what we still, you know, it's crazy. We I don't think we have a report who's clearly going to the Combine yet. I've been looking for that. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing what his athletic skills. But I'll say this. I'm more concerned about his 20-yard shuttle and his three-cone drill than I am about the straight 40 speed. I do believe once he's at the second level of the defense, Brees Hall can take it the distance. If you watch the Cyclones as much as I have, he doesn't get caught from behind a lot. Part of it's obviously the competition. I get that. But part of it is he has football speed on film. And for a running back, that's an incredible trait, my friend. Yeah, he does. I don't know what he's going to run in the 40, but like I'm really not worried about like functional game speed with him. Um, do you have any reservations about any of the, the big three? I mean, obviously not Brees Hall, but uh, Spiller or Walker. Are there any things that sort of bother you about their profiles? Um, I'm wondering if all can pick up the NFL blitz. I, I think that's uh, always to me that's a concern. Kenneth Walker was the least impressive pass catcher on film, but I have to put it into context. He played at Wake Forest, and they don't ever throw the football. If you've seen the Demon Deacons wide receivers over the last four years, why would you ever throw the football to the running backs? So he only has 19 career receptions. Michigan State didn't use him a ton in the passing game. However, we've seen, remember Leonard Fournette coming out of LSU? And people have the same criticism. Could Leonard Fournette really be a pass catcher at the NFL? Well, you put him with Tom Brady, and Leonard Fournette, Fournette is one of the best pass catchers in the NFL from the running back position. So there's a little concern there, yes. Isaiah Spiller, my number two, my concern is I've never seen him, Pat, be the every down back. Like, it, he shared the backfield, and they have a great talent in Devin A-Chain, so I understand why A-Chain got um, touches in the Aggies offense. But I've never seen Spiller where they, Texas A&M just put the ball in his hands and said, win us the a the um, SEC West. When I have first round, and I have a second round grade on all three, I don't think either of these three running backs should go in the first round. 
When I have a first-round grade, and I did for Najee Harris, Jonathan Taylor, Saquon Barkley, I need to see the film and the production where the young man carried the load literally 25 times a game for like two months straight. Because I remember I was reading someone's analysis, and I, I wish I could give him credit, but when you read so much stuff over you know, 15, 20 years, but it was about like the bell cow college running back. If they have that number of carries in college, Melvin Gordon types, they tend to be the same bell cow in the NFL. But I haven't seen that with Spiller. Do I think it's in his realm of outcomes? Yes. Because remember Javante Williams last year? But ironically, Williams wasn't the bell cow this year, right? We haven't seen Williams carry the ball 25 times a game. Do I think he can do it? Yes, but we haven't seen it yet. So that's my concern about Spiller, my friend. Yeah, and that's a fair point. I mean, there aren't many, as you said, I mean, we we think Javante can be a bell cow, but he hasn't done it yet. And, you know, he was sharing a backfield with Michael Carter at North Carolina. And then, I don't know, I guess maybe the exception would be that Alabama backfield from a couple of years ago with Damian oh. Harris, Najee Harris, and, and Josh Jacobs. You're right. You're right. Because that was a, they had so much talent at Alabama, right? Just That's sick. crazy. <laughs> Just <laughs> sick. Do you, have, do you have one or two favorites from beyond the big three, John? Yeah, I, you know, this is going to be a fascinating draft because there's going to be some difference of opinion here, which there usually are running back. But I think Kyren Williams is not getting enough press, my friend. The young man from Notre Dame. I know he's listed at 5'9", 195, knock on wood. That's a good size. I don't want him to show up at 185. Does that make sense? Let's keep him in that 195 range. Because when you do the BMI and those type of factors, 5'9", 195 is very nice unbelievable pass catcher 78 receptions at Notre Dame and basically he's only played two years it he didn't really play his freshman I think he actually took a red shirt because he he's finished his third season on campus but he's only been the starter for the last two years so Kyren Williams is 78 impressive receptions in the last two years is incredibly impressive he had 27% of the scrimmage yards for the Fighting Irish this year. And what I like about him so much, Pat, he can stonewall a blitzer. He might be the best back in this class at picking up the linebacker and not only blocking him, but literally putting him on his back. Kyren Williams has some incredible tape of him really punching <laughs> an opponent in the face. That will get you on the field in the NFL. Because we know when you have quarterbacks, and we've all seen it with Tom Brady, why could Ronda, Jones, Rondell Jones not get on the field? He literally can't pass block. You cannot let your quarterback just get destroyed at the NFL level. A coach will feel comfortable putting Kyren Williams on third down and eight, third down and 12. Because if he has to stay in, he can pick up the blitz, but he's also incredibly dynamic. If he's your check down option, Kyren Williams can take a third and 12 and he can get you a first down. 
fascinated. I have a second round grade. I think he'll go in the third round unless he checks out. What if he's 5'9", 198, right? What if he's putting on a few, getting ready to show us how big he is? Let's see what his size is. Absolutely love him. I'm going to give you a player. I like a bunch, but I'll give you another one that people aren't talking a lot about. Tyler Algier out of BYU. I have him at number seven. Couple things. Now, I liked his tape a ton, and I watched a ton of Zach Wilson last year. And if you were breaking down Zach Wilson, it was hard not to notice Tyler Algier on film. But for him to come back, he was even better this year, Pat. He had 1,805 yards from scrimmage, 31% of the Cougar scrimmage yards in his career. He averaged 6.4 yards a carry. He's 5'11", 220. Woo! This young man played linebacker. He hurts you physically. And I know in the NFL, if you can run between the tackles and you, you can hurt people, there's a spot for you in the NFL. I have a third-round grade. I would love to see Tyler Algier get drafted on day two because then I'm really interested in him because that tells me the NFL likes him also. If he drops into that day three, that's when we always have a conundrum, right? You're not sure with the draft capital. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you called out Kyron because uh, to be under 200 and have that sort of blocking ability, like that's important. I mean, you mentioned Ronald Jones. I think that's kind of why we've been disappointed with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. They're not going to let him sit back there and on third down and get Patrick Mahomes killed. You know, <laughs> he <it's>, can't <laughs> do it. <laughs> so people always wonder why, you know, this guy was such a, a skilled pass catcher in college and why he hasn't brought it over into the NFL. And, and that's kind of why they just, don't feel comfortable with him on the field in those situations. And that if you watch, and I like Clyde Edwards earlier, I, I thought they overdrafted him, but that's a different story for another day. I did like him coming out, um, but Kyren Williams is a better pass blocker than Clyde Edwards Alil. It's just on film, there's no question about it. Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. FTX is the fully regulated, safe, and easy way to buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, even NFTs. Plus, you can earn free crypto on every trade over $10, all with up to 85% lower fees than other crypto exchanges. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX. Show Hazen. Are you? Oh, hey, kiddo. How was the hill? Educational. Oh, learned a new trick? Yeah, the trick to a happy, fulfilling life, maybe. I learned that mountain air unleashes my inner peace. And Rip and Pow, well, the whole crew's all, Yoo! Induces spontaneous joy. Okay, uh, that's nice. The Icon Pass lets you do you at 50 destinations worldwide from 249 Adult. Drop in for next winter now and save at IconPass.com. John, you made a memorable appearance on the Scott Fishbowl 
uh, Podathon a couple of years ago where you talked about your passion for teaching. You're a teacher in your day job. And it just, <laughs> it came across as, as so genuine to me. I mean, you, you strike me as a guy who wears his heart on his sleeve. And when you were talking about how much you love teaching and connecting with kids, I just remember thinking that we need a lot more John Lobbs in American schools. So um, what, what subject do you teach and, and what grade do you teach? First, Pat, that's very kind of you, and I, I appreciate it tremendously because there is, you know, it, it's so interesting because, of course, in a dream world, I could have been an NFL scout, right? <laughs> but I, I can't give up helping these young people right now. There is nothing like having a class of young adults in front of you when they get the lesson or the unit and and they smile like they're if you're if you haven't seen it I feel bad for teachers or and I understand if you're not a teacher but when you're in that classroom and you have 24 kids who are happy there might not be a better feeling in the world and I have three wonderful children and a terrific wife so I don't but so it's hard to compare family to job right but it's just so awesome. And to see that year after year and know that these kids are excited to learn. Now, not everyone, you know, if you're in teaching, not every young adult you come across. But I always say if you can help as many as you can, it changes everything. And that's it's it's just such a great feeling. And that's one of the things that was hard about teaching from home. Was I love being with the kids in the classroom. It's so much fun. One of the best things is the five minutes before the bell rings and you're just talking with the kids and enjoying the day and you get to see what the teenagers are thinking is such so much fun. But I teach sophomores and juniors predominantly. Um, I've taught sophomores every year. So this is my 16th year at my current school and every year I've had sophomores. So I would like to say I'm pretty expert on the 15-year-old mind, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, I could use your help around here then, John. I've got a 16-year-old <laughs> and a 14-year-old, so. Oh, the, hey, you know, <laughs> yes, if you ever want to hit me up, you know, I've actually had some good friends who um, I would never say that because people text me or message me personally, but I've actually had some fantasy football fans who have teenagers and have asked me questions. Is this normal? Is this what your students are like? And I'm like, you know, yeah, you know, good or bad, right or wrong, your, your child is completely normal. Um, you might think they're not from your perspective, but from someone who's seen them year after year in the classroom, yes, you have a normal, happy, healthy teenager. Um, and I, I even was joking with my wife the other day. Even my own son, he doesn't talk to me as much. Now he's 17. He used to always talk to me. He still talks to me, but it's different. You know what I mean? You'll it it's normal. You just hope you raise them well. You hope that they go about their business for two or three years, junior, senior year, freshman year of college, and then they come back. And it's been wonderful. I was telling my I'm sorry I go off, but I just got to tell you another story because I also have kids. My oldest daughter, my wife was very sad because um, she kind of like disappeared and for two years. And I kept telling her, my love, it's okay. Linda's a good kid. She's finding herself. And she went up to college freshman year. All of a sudden, about six months ago, 
my wife and I were eating dinner on the deck and I said, my love, have you noticed how much Linda talks to us again? And she's like, yeah, I have noticed. I said, she came back. That's okay. She was seeking her independence. It's a hard thing as a parent when it happens, but it's okay. And the reason why I know this so well, I have so many parents, because we have meet the teacher night, report card night. And so many of my parents say, I'm glad that my son or daughter has you, Mr. Laub, because they talk about you. And I know they are talking to some adult, even though they're not talking to me. And every, I can't tell you the number of parents. And it usually happens junior year of college, uh, high school, I'm sorry. So it's completely normal, my friend. Yeah, that's going to make you feel good to hear that, though. Yeah, and you know, I hope that my son has someone in his high school, be it a friend or a teacher, hopefully, preferably a teacher, right? Someone who he feels comfortable talking to. Um, And that's what I always want to do for my students is make them feel comfortable. And I think there's a lot of learning that goes on that isn't school book learning when you are talking to a young adult just casually. Like one of the girls the other day said, I heard, I walked in and she was talking about the TV show, The Flash. And I said, oh, I like The Flash. And she goes, Mr. Lobb, you like The Flash? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's a great show. And she was so happy. And that was it. I just went to my desk afterward. But when you see those moments with the young people, you know that that's as valuable as so many other things that it was okay for her to like the flash. (laughs) Is there an event or a period in history you uh, most enjoy teaching your students about? I do. When I was younger, I used to love to teach more about the Civil War and World War II. I think a lot of history teachers gravitate to those. But as I got older and I did more reading and I did more research, I love the Gilded Age, my friend. There are so many interesting things with the rise of industrialization, the rise of the urban community, people coming from Europe, immigrants to America, these drastic changes that our country went through during the Industrial Revolution, Gilded Age period, science, technology, the rise, you know, the rise, the radio, the automobile, the airplane with the Wright brothers. There is just so many fascinating stories of this time period that because I'm in my 50s, we really didn't learn enough about the Gilded Age. And now that I, I've learned and read so many books and I get to share that experience with my students is amazing. Like just today, it's so funny that you asked this question because with my APUSH students, which is AP US History, we are talking about the rise of the urban cities in the 1890s. And one of the favorite stories that I love to tell them the kids are with their eyes open I was like, can you imagine living in a city before a sewer, a sewage system? And they're like, what? I'm like, you got to understand what New York, Philadelphia, London, like building a sewage system 
and keeping the city clean to move water in and out of the city is one of the most amazing engineering feats that you could imagine. When you think there's almost 15 million people in New York City every day, and they all have to go to the bathroom and drink water. And to get that much water into New York City and out? <laughs> and then, of course, the next question is, well, what was it like before? <laughs> I'm like, it wasn't pleasant. So you don't want to know. And there's so many stories of the Gilded Age like that. So I just love that time period. Jen, you're in New Haven, Connecticut, correct? I am, my friend. I've, I've never had New Haven style pizza, John. What am I missing? Well, first, let me say this. If you are ever in Connecticut, please call me up and I will take you and your family to get New Haven style pizza. That's a but deal. <laughs> I will glad because it is so good, my friend. First, it's made in a brick oven. And most pizza isn't made in brick ovens. And in New Haven at the better pizza places, some of the brick ovens are like over 120 years old. And just by having a brick oven that is that old, that, you know, you're literally setting it to 800 degrees, you know, six out of seven nights a week for 100 years, there is a taste and a smell that comes into the pizza on that brick oven. And then when you make a brick oven pizza, the style, nine out of 10 times, is thin crust. When I was young, I liked thick crusted pizza. I thought that, because that's what I grew up with, right? But now when I moved to New Haven about 20 years ago and thin crust pizza became the norm that I ate, Pat, I taste more the sauce, the cheese, the whatever I put on the pizza. Because sometimes in thick crust pizza, the bread becomes the dominant taste. Does that make sense? In thin crust pizza, the sauce, the cheese, the... If I, I have this thing, oh my God, there's a mashed potato pizza that I love at my favorite pizza place in New Haven. Oh, the, the, the spices they put in the mashed potatoes and then you get the melted cheese and you have the thin crust pizza. You taste the potato, you taste the cheese and then you get this nice little, so a good thin crusted pizza in a brick oven, my friend. It has to be a little burnt. Can't be burnt, but it can't be raw. It's got to just have that. This is the perfect cook on it, where you might have a little dot of burned, but the rest of the pizza is perfect. So when you get to the crust, it's very thin and light. So you're not getting filled up on crust and bread. You're really getting filled up on everything on the pizza and you really get to taste it. It is simply spectacular. Oh, you're making my mouth water, John. Uh, yay, or nay on, <laughs> yay or nay on white clam pizza. I ha So I love white pizza, but I hate clams. So <laughs> I have to be a nay on that one. Fair enough. Fair enough. I know that's a New Haven specialty. It, um, it is. 
John, let's uh, in the time we have left, we we got to hit on the wide receivers in this class. And I'm kind of curious about your overall take on the class. I mean, it seems like we've been spoiled by some pretty good wideout classes in recent years. And it seems like we're getting another good one this year with both star power at the top and some depth to it. Is that your take also? Oh, yeah, my friend. The wide receiver class is is strong. It is deep. You have everything you want. You want a speedster? We got it. You want a route runner? We got it. You want big, physical, and strong? We got it. You want a kick returner who can line up in the backfield? We got it. You want a pass catcher who can play in the slot and beat you with size? We got it. So no no matter what you're looking for, my friend, you can find the receiver in this class. I have five players with the first round grade, and I have seven players with the second round grade. Yeah, now who's your number one? Because I've been listening to uh, some of your recent draft seminars uh, where you (laughs) drill down on these guys. And I'm not sure I know, based on, on the reviews of some of these guys, who your number one is. So who is your number one? My man out of Arkansas, Traylon Burks. Just, he can be special. And I, I have to, you know, I try, I'm even mesmerized by his ceiling, my friend. 6'3", 225. I'm biased towards the SEC West. But I'm not going to put a guy number one just because of those two reasons. The film, the physicality, the hand catching, the ability to be versatile. You could line them up in the backfield. You could put them in the slot. You can put them out in the X. You can put them on the Y. 147 career receptions at Arkansas in three years. 16.4 yards a catch, my friend. He is dangerous. He is big. He is fast. He gets down the field. But what really did it for me, two stats, and I'm not just, I love the film. Um, But two stats kind of cemented him in my book at the top of the board. He had a 72% catch rate. My friend Pat, can you name a quarterback at Arkansas? No. I mean, I should be able to, but I I can't. (laughs) He's not catching passes from Tua or Joe Burrow, my friend. 72% catch rate is phenomenal for a player who did not play with extraordinarily talented quarterbacks. And this one I love. Playing in the SEC West, arguably the best division in the best conference in college football. He had a 41% team aerial dominator rating. No one could stop him. If he comes to the combine and he blows it out, remember Cortland Sutton? When Sutton went to the Combine, and I had loved Sutton at SMU, but when he showed me his athletic ability at the Combine, I was like, all right, no question. Unbelievable, my number one. If Traylon Burks does that, I think he can. That's within the realm of outcomes because he looks like on film an extraordinary athlete. Oh, my God. I actually do believe this, Pat. He's an amalgamation of DK Metcalf, Debo Samuel and Cortland Sutton. Shake them up, and what you're going to get is Traylon Burks, my friend. 
That's a pretty exotic combination. I like that a lot. <laughs> um, so two others I need to ask you about, Garrett Sorry. Wilson and Drake London. Garrett, Wil- Garrett Wilson is number two right now. I did not expect to be here at number two on Garrett Wilson. And I've been a big Garrett Wilson fan in Debbie and Dynasty for the last two years. And my teammate, Matt Hicks, and I, we had kind of an off-tape friendly bet. He was team Chris Olave, and I was team Garrett Wilson. And last year, most people had Olave ranked ahead of Wilson. So we made a friendly side wager, and I said, I like Wilson better than Olave. Now you look at the draft boards right now, I don't think I see one with Olave over Wilson. No, not anymore. No. And I couldn't believe two weeks ago I had to do my deep dive for the draft seminar. I watched more Garrett Wilson tape. I fell in love with him again. He's better than I remember, my friend. He is Jerry Judy, route runner, and Stephon Diggs rolled into one. He's the best route runner in this class. And this is what is incredibly special about Garrett Wilson. He gets open deep down the field, Pat. Not only is he incredible at the line of scrimmage, like he can get open in half a second. But what's most impressive on the second level, Pat? Oh my God. There are times on film he has four yards of separation on defensive backs 30 yards down the field. Like, there are literally times on film when the cornerback, he just literally broke the ankles of the cornerback. (coughs) And I was watching C.J. Stroud had literally the easiest throw that a quarterback could ever imagine, my friend. Like, he's like, it's, you ever, oh, what, remember those video games where you had the wide receiver with the circle around him and he's running on the screen? Yes. <laughs> That's Garrett Wilson. Like, there's no one in the film. And you're like, how does he get open like that against top level secondaries 15, 20, 30 yards downfield on a consistent basis? So he's my number two. And then Drake London's my number four. Absolutely love him. However, I think he might be better, and this might be counterintuitive, as a Z or slot receiver. I'm not sure his elite separation. So for the X receiver, I want one of two things. I want elite footwork where he can just beat the defensive back immediately with excellence with his feet, or I want a big receiver like Julio Jones who knows how to use his body and his hands to immediately create separation to get open. I'm not sure if Drake London is that special. He's very good. Don't get me wrong. He's my number four, right? But I think in the slot or at the Z, he'd be unbelievable, my friend. Like, if you put him with DK Metcalf, oh, forget about it. Because Metcalf's so good at the X. Drake London at 6'5", 210, though. If you watch the three years of film, and if you watch USC football like I do, 
The big argument that I had with people, so I had to project a little bit two years ago and, and summer of 2021. Because his first two years at USC, he only ran out of the slot position most of the time. Why did he do that? Well, they had a man named Amon Ross St. Brown and Michael Pittman on the team. So what USC did is they took a young prospect, 6'5", 210, and put him in the slot. And Pat, no one could cover him in the Pac-12. No one. They couldn't cover a 6'5", 210. But the question was, can he go outside? Well, Amon Ross St. Brown graduated. We just saw what he did with the Detroit Lions. They moved Drake London to the outside, and it was silly. In eight games, he had like 118 targets. Like, the numbers are off the charts this year. He wins with physicality. He wins with his body, and he has unbelievable hands. Pat, I now I'm sure it happened, but I can't find a catch where the ball hit his body. Every ball... He just snatches it with his two hands. Great, great wide receiver, but my number four. I love that we have this kind of size in this wide receiver class. After yeah. last year's class, which was terrific, but it was a bunch of slot guys mostly. <laughs> it was. And a lot of under <laughs> a lot of undersize, you know, there was not a real stud X if my memory serves me. All right, John. So I have to find out who's who's your number three. And is there any maybe like one other guy beyond that? You you are especially fond of and might want to mention. Number three is Jamison Williams. And I know there are going to be people like those who believe in young breakout age, right? They're going to say he didn't break out until I think it was his fourth year with Alabama this year. But let's put it in context, my friend. He was in Ohio State. <laughs> Have you seen the talent that the Buckeyes had put out? I mean, we just talked about Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, if we were having this discussion one year ago, people were thinking Chris Olave was going to go to the NFL draft, right? He, he might have been a top three pick at the wide receiver position. So that's why Jameis Williams didn't get on the field. Now, he made an astute business decision. He looked at the Alabama depth chart. He saw that there was opportunity. He arrives in Tuscaloosa. And if you watch the Crimson Tide this year, my friend, he was the most valuable player on the offense. I know Bryce Young won the Heisman, and I get it, because that's what you do with the quarterback of the team that wins. But Jameis Williams was the best player on the offense. All you have to do is watch the game against Georgia. When Williams got hurt, what happened to that Alabama offense, my friend? Yeah, I mean, it collapsed. Exactly. It collapsed. When Williams was on the field, Alabama's offense was almost unstoppable. 6-2-189. He averaged 20.6 yards per reception. Now, I'll be honest. Alabama's offense, because it's so schemed so well, they have such elite athletes and such good quarterbacks over the last four years, the yards per reception are going to go up. But I'll say this about Williams. He got open deep. A lot of times, if you watch Alabama like I have over the years, Jerry Judy, um, Henry Ruggs, um, Devonta Smith, they would catch a lot of short passes 
and break it for a long touchdown. What makes Williams so interesting on film? He beats the secondary deep. They get him the ball 30 yards in the air, and then he scores. He might be the best deep route runner of all these Alabama players. I think Devonta Smith's a better overall route runner because in short yardage and in the short area, Devonta Smith was incredible. Jerry Judy might have been better at all three levels, short, intermediate, and deep. But if you're asking me for a deep receiver, the young man who could beat everyone over the top, that's Jameis Williams. I have him at number three. I'm optimistic. We know ACL injuries. They're, they, the, the, met, the medicals are better. The, the surgeries are better. Recovery. So I'm expecting him to recover. And I like him. He's my number third receiver. The one player that I like a lot, and I did not expect to like him, but he just dominated. Wendale Robinson of Kentucky. He went to Nebraska. He was one of the highest ranked players to go to the Cornhuskers. I thought with Scott Frost coming from UCF, you know, they, they, they had Adrian Martinez, the quarterback, who was a high-ranked prospect. And Robinson went to the Cornhuskers, and I, I had very high expectations for him. But if you watched him at Nebraska, he wasn't very good. He was okay. Man, when he went to Kentucky, I was like, that's interesting. He's going to the SEC East. What an, like to go from Nebraska Big Ten to SEC East? That's a big jump, right? Pat, he was unbelievable. He he had a 45% team aerial dominator for the Wildcats. He had a 72 catch percentage. Now he's 5'11, 5'11, 185. Knock on wood. I'm worried that he might be a little smaller. Let's see what he is. 195 career receptions. The only concern, because he was at Nebraska and because he was peppered with so many targets, he only averaged 11.5 yards per reception. But I have a second-round grade on Robinson. I like him a lot. Yeah, Wandale can fly. He's going to be – it's going to be – that will be a 40 – everyone's going to want to see. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, John, I only have one more question for you. We got a big game coming up on Sunday. What's your prediction? I, I don't think it's going to be a good game. I think the Rams destroy them because of the Rams front seven is such a mismatch against the Bengals offensive line. And I understand the Bengals offensive line Somehow they've won these games and Joe Burrow has shown me such guts and fortitude and he has played so well. But I think this weekend with that Rams front seven, with Aaron Donald, with um, uh, uh, Vaughn Miller and Leonard Floyd, I think the pressure is going to be too much. I like the Rams to cover and I think they win by like 18 or more. Yeah, I, man, I hope you're wrong about that. But I, Me I'm too. a little bit worried about that. I mean, Zach Taylor is really going to have to call an incredible game to uh, overcome that mismatch on the, the lines. I agree that that's going to be a big problem. So. I mean, it's, been as, it's as big of a mismatch as I've ever seen up front when you look at, like, rankings of offensive lines versus defensive lines in the Super Bowl. Woo! 
I know. Ladies and gentlemen, that is John Laub, the gridiron scholar himself. Find him on Twitter at gridironscholl91. Go check out the draft seminar shows, and I'm sure there are going to be more in the run-up to the draft. And go check him out at Football Diehards. John, thank you so much for being here. And believe me, if I am in New Haven anytime soon, I'm going to be stopping by and we're going to go out for mashed potato pizza. I can't wait, my friend. And thank you so much for having me on. And that's it for the show. My thanks once again to this week's guest, John Lobb of Football Diehards and the Draft Seminar Show. Find him on Twitter at gridironskull 91 I also need to thank my producer, Calm Kelly. Find him on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. The music for Fits on Fantasy is provided by International Jet Set. And my sincere thanks to all of you for listening to and supporting the show. Well, we're down to just one game left this season, and let's hope it's a memorable one, befitting an outstanding postseason. Other than the uh, anticlimactic super wildcard weekend, things have been pretty awesome. The divisional round was one for the ages. The conference championship games were pretty good. Let's hope we get a Super Bowl that uh, is competitive goes down to the wire, gives us some thrills, and uh, I'll offer a quick prediction. I've been riding the Bengals pretty hard throughout the playoffs. They've been making me a little bit of money, but I have some major concerns about how Cincinnati is going to keep the Rams' pass rush at bay. Frankly, I don't think they're going to be able to do it. So as much as I have enjoyed this Bengals run, I'm going to say the Rams win this one 27-20. But uh, let's hope... We get an entertaining climax to the season, and uh, let's hope we get some good ads this year. Last year's ads pretty much sucked. Enjoy it, my friends. Here's hoping you savor the Super Bowl with good food, good drink, and good friends. So long, everyone. This season on American Prodigies, Black Girls in Gymnastics. You'll hear about trailblazers like Diane Durham. Learn what you don't know you don't know about Dominique Dawes. Meet superstars like Olympic silver medalist Jordan Childs and more. Hear how Black gymnasts have and continue to transform their sport. You can binge all the episodes of American Prodigies now, wherever you get your podcasts.